Is that me? Yes, of course it's me. How we doing? So great to have you here. Uh, there is a lot that God is doing here at Friendship, and we're excited about it. I just had a chance to meet with a few of our families that will be dedicating their kids in the upcoming weeks. As I look out, I see a few of you that are getting baptized in two weeks. Uh, if you're interested in being baptized in a couple of weeks, talk to me, or you can go on the website and learn more about that, and you can sign up for baptism there on the website as well. Uh, you've heard about 101, and you can come and be a part of that and learn more about what friendship is and how you can be involved in that as well. I want to invite all of you, as I stand up here this morning, to spend a couple of minutes at the beginning of our time uh, praying for the Davis family with me. Uh, Holly Davis, a longtime member here at Friendship, went to be with the Lord yesterday after many, many months of battling cancer. And so we want to be praying for her husband, Steve, and for that family. And so I'd encourage you guys to be praying for them throughout this week and ongoing. And would you bow with me and let's just pray for them right now. Father, we are thankful for the way that you draw us to yourself. We're grateful for the life that Holly had in you. We recognize now that she is absent from the body, but that means being present with the Lord. Lord, we, we want to recognize not the things that are seen, that are transient, but the things that are unseen, that are eternal, and know that to die means more Jesus. And we're thankful that Holly is having that experience now, that she is experiencing uh, ultimate healing in your presence and stands before you in your glory. Lord, we, we want to pray for Holly's family, particularly for Steve, but also for the kids and others who are close. We, Lord, we ask for you to be that supernatural comfort and strength in their lives, to provide a peace that really does go beyond all understanding for them during this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you guys open with me to Genesis chapter 11? Genesis 11 is where we're going to be in our final week of our sermon series called Creation and the Cross. In this sermon series, we're looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis and looking at how they relate to the cross of Jesus Christ, the central event in all of history. Today, we're going to be looking at the first few verses of Genesis chapter 11. And as you're turning there, I want to talk to you about SARS. S-A-R-S. SARS is the most damaging disease that our planet has ever experienced. It can destroy your life, it can destroy your relationships, it can destroy your joy, it can destroy your hope. It is absolutely devastating. But, but when I'm talking about SARS this morning, I am not talking about severe acute respiratory syndrome. I'm talking about a different kind of SARS this morning, one that does far more damage to our world and far more damage to individuals. The SARS I'm talking about is self-absorption reflux syndrome. <laughs> now friends, this is not a recognized medical diagnosis. Uh, but is actually something coined by a local radio host years ago because this radio host, who is not a Christian, looked around at the world and said, I feel like the greatest problem we have is how me-centered people are. Oh, everybody is constantly putting themselves first. Now, this isn't a follower of Jesus, 
And so he doesn't have that framework, but he looks around the world and says, man, the biggest problem we have in our world is self-absorption. Now, when this radio host is talking about self-absorption reflux syndrome, he's usually relating it to some sort of celebrity or professional athlete who has put themselves above everyone else in some way. But in fact, self-absorption is on display every day in our world in little ways, isn't it? This last week, I was stuck in traffic. You've had that experience. Two lanes going down to one because of construction and because there was a large number of cars trying to get to this location, we were backed up probably a mile from where we were trying to make the two lanes become one. And I'm sitting there realizing that I am going to be late for my next meeting. You had that experience? You're like, ah, no, I'm going to be late. I don't want to be late. But what do you do? You got to sit there. You got to wait your turn. Well, that was not one person's thinking as we were sitting there waiting our turn. Uh, as this guy in this black sedan pulls around all of us along the median, two wheels on the median, two wheels on the grass, goes around all of us at like 45 miles per hour, gets up to where everyone's merging, jumps back into traffic and is on their way. Because he was in a hurry. Well, weren't there many people in line who were in a hurry? Yes, but SARS says, I am at the center. Right? I, I'm what's important here. I can't be late. <laughs> These other people, whatever. i, I got to worry about myself here. Uh, SARS isn't just out there in celebrities and in really bad drivers. Uh, SARS, uh, we see self-absorption in effect every time a two-year-old doesn't get the toy that they want to play with and throws a tantrum. We see self-absorption uh, anytime there's an eight-year-old who cuts in line in order to get ahead of his friends at school. Or anytime a 15-year-old talks bad about their fellow 15-year-old in order to make themselves feel better about where they are on the social ladder. We see self-absorption at work every time somebody walks past that sink full of dishes and just leaves it for somebody else to do. I, I heard deep conviction there for a few of you on that one. <laughs> I see. Uh, there, there's self-absorption. If we post over and over again on social media, and every post is about me, 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 and more me. I, I fight self-absorption in my own life every time my thoughts make my words, my decisions, or my actions want to be me-focused. Self-absorption, it's a big problem. And the Bible has a name for self-absorption. The Bible's name for it is pride, right? Pride. It is the primary problem that we have as human beings being focused on ourselves as the center of life instead of our great creator as the center of our lives. That's pride. God has made us, but when we focus on ourselves and focus life around us instead of around him, that's pride, Pride is on display in large quantities in our topic for our message today. Because in Genesis chapter 11, we come to account often referred to as the Tower of Babel. Look at this account with me, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now where did we leave off last week? There was a great flood. And after that great flood, there was one family left. And that family began to have kids. And naturally, they all shared the same language as they went from generation to generation. 
as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They're all going to settle together in this same location on the plains of Shinar. Now, what city is being established here in Genesis 11-2? It's a famous city. One that is seen throughout the Old Testament and even in the New, and I've heard a couple of you say it. As this is being established, Babylon is being established. We see that in Daniel chapter 1, 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. As we see the city of Babel established on the plains of Shinar, remember that this is later the city of Babylon that is established on the plains of Shinar. And we want to keep that in the back of our minds as we read about Babylon and what it means throughout the scripture. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. As the Israelites were working in Egypt, they primarily worked with stone and mortar. And so here, Moses is telling them, okay, well, when they made these structures that we're talking about in ancient Babylonia, what they did is they used bricks where you're used to using stone, and they used bitumen or tar where you're used to using mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to build a ziggurat. Not a cigarette, a ziggurat. It's totally different, but I did have a couple people mishear me in the first service. Uh, Ziggurats were these man-made buildings that were meant to be like mountains. They often had a place of worship on the top, and if you ascended to the top of these pyramid-like structures, you were thought to be on the same plane as the gods or as God. And so they're trying to elevate themselves to this level where they can worship God and be at his level. Now, one of the things that we see here that they are doing wrong is that they are intentionally and directly disobeying God's clear command to people. In Genesis chapter 1, God tells people that you are supposed to be fruitful and you are to multiply and you are to fill the earth. When Noah's boat lands, God comes back and he tells that family, you are to be fruitful and you're to multiply. And what are you to do? You are to fill the earth. And here we see on the plains of Shinar that all of the people who are, who are left, they come and they are going to huddle together. They are going to, it says, settle. And at the end of verse 4, they say, come on, let's make a name for ourselves so that we will not be distributed around the world. They are very intentionally being disobedient to the command of God to go out and fill the earth and instead are saying, no, let's all be in one place. God's design was that they would depend upon him as they spread out throughout the earth and instead they've said, no, come on, let's come here and be dependent upon our own ingenuity and on our own human devices. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I love this picture. God comes down to see what they're doing. Right now, God doesn't have a physical body. 
but we often get these poetic pictures of him moving and working as if he did. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22 says, God is enthroned above the earth and people are like grasshoppers to him. And here, God like looks down and is like, what are the bugs down there doing? And this is meant to be contrasted with the human beings who are like, let's build a hundred foot tall tower in order to get up to God. I don't think that's going to get the job done. Elsewhere in Isaiah chapter 40, we are told that God holds the universe in the hollow of his hand. Just giving us pictures of God's majesty and his enormity. And people think if they build a hundred foot tall tower, they'll get up there with him. You can see the flaws in their thinking here. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible to them. People working together as one people had reached new heights in being independent from God, seeking their own glory and disobeying God. And God says, if we let this continue to go on, how far will their pride take them into their own innovation, their own independence from God, their own disobedience? So God says, we're going to intervene. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Notice here how the Trinity is again speaking within the Godhead, right? Let us, just like Genesis chapter 1. We need to take action here. What is that action going to look like? We are going to confuse their language just to make life confusing. No, they're going to confuse their language so that they will be obedient to that command that they are being disobedient to and they will disperse and fill the earth as God had originally designed and commanded. And so that's what happens. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. What was the chief problem here in Babel that caused them to be disobedient to God? Right? What was at the root of their disobedience? The root of their disobedience was their self-absorption and their pride. Look again at verse 4. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They could do what God wants or what they want, and they choose self. They could make God's name great and exalt God's name, or they could seek to make a name for themselves, and they choose self. And in pride, instead of choosing God, they regularly choose self. And this is really the decision that has to get made by people throughout the Scripture. Am I going to honor the one who made me and make life all about him, or am I going to honor myself? and make life primarily about me? Am I going to live in humility, or am I going to live in pride? Pride, self-absorption, self-focus, that is the way of Babylon throughout the Scriptures. It starts here in Babel, but it continues on throughout all of Babylon's existence. So that we read in the prophet Isaiah about the nation of Babylon, it says, Now therefore hear this, you lover of pleasures, speaking to Babylon who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. Right? Some of your translations say, I am, and there is no one like me. 
two verses later. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. Look at that phrase that is representative of Babylon. I am and there is no one like me. Isn't that the ultimate expression of pride? I'm at the center, things are about me, and there is nobody who is as good as I am. There, there is nobody like me. I am amazing. That is the expression of Babylon. And it's really the expression of Babylon's most famous king. I think Babylon's most famous king was King Nebuchadnezzar. And in Daniel chapter 4, what does he say? Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of what? My majesty. That's Babylon. Throughout the Old Testament, it represents self-focus and pride. Right into the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, where Babylon represents self-focus, human ingenuity, and pride. That was their great sin. Let us make a name for ourselves. That's pride. What does pride look like when it comes to tempt us? Let me, let me just give you three real short things here to focus on. Pride seeks my way. September 2nd, 1986, some of you were alive on that date. Some of you were not yet born. Uh, two ships collided in the Black Sea in Russia. One of them was a passenger ship carrying hundreds of people. And as these two ships collided, they sank. And hundreds of people died in those icy waters. Later, when an investigation was done, it was found out that the problem wasn't mechanical. The problem wasn't a radar-based issue. It wasn't even weather. The problem was the stubbornness of the two captains. Both of them insisted that they had the right of way and were unwilling to move for the other ship. These two ships collided and hundreds of people died because each one in pride says, no, I have the right of way here. They need to move. Sounds like the fate of a handful of marriages that I've been called in to do marriage counseling for. I will have my way, no matter what it dooms. Well, let's be real. It sounds like the battle that goes on inside of me, right? And, and inside of you every day? In my own marriage, there is a constant battle. Am I going to fight for my way? Or am I going to seek God's way and my wife's way in things? On a semi-humorous note, I've told you before that when my wife and I got married, we had different ways of folding shirts, right? Uh, there was Erica's way, and then there was the right way to do it. <laughs> and for 15 years of our marriage, I kept saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? That's not the right way to do it. Come on, you got to do it like this. And after 15 years of marriage, for some unknown reason that I don't even remember at this point, I tried it her way. And I realized, oh, this is more efficient. This is more effective. And I've never folded a shirt again that wasn't her way. But for the first 15 years, what was I doing? I was insisting that my way was right and measuring other people's effectiveness based on how closely it matched my way. Now, in much more serious ways, don't we do that all the time? We're sure that our way of thinking is right. We're sure that our way of doing things is right. We, we don't even know why sometimes. We just, well, yeah, that just seems to work out for me. And then we measure how effective other people are based on how closely it matches what we're doing. It insists on my way. 
This is a battle in every one of our marriages. Am I going to fight for my way? This is a battle among siblings. Am I going to fight for my way? This is a battle at our workplace. Is work going to be primarily about me getting my way? This is a battle in schools. Are my school relationships going to be about me getting my way? Pride is primarily focused on me seeking my way. Second, pride seeks to focus conversations so that they have their center on me. In pride, when I enter into a conversation, I want to make sure that people understand how much I know about a subject. I want to make sure that people understand how right I am about a subject. I want to make sure that whatever subject we're discussing is the one I'm interested in. Let's move it to something I'm interested in. In pride, I want to talk about myself and not ask questions to hear about others. In pride, my my posts on social media are all about me and never about the goodness of God in my life. That is pride rearing its head when I want to focus conversations primarily around me. Third, pride seeks my name being lifted up. A while back, I was in a store, and I saw a pair of jeans being sold for $185 that were marketed to teenagers. Right? I would say like 17 to 20 was the demographic based on the advertisements around these jeans. For $185. If you are 18 years old, what possible reason would you go and spend $185 on a pair of jeans? Certainly, a cheap $85 pair of jeans has to fit just as well, right? Like, what? The only reason I could think that someone might buy that $185 pair of jeans is that whatever brand is on it may, in fact, exalt my name among some small group of people. Right? Like, if they see me wearing that brand, they will think more of me. That can be the only reason to spend $185 on a pair of jeans. Now, I don't own any $185 pair of jeans. I don't have to tell you that. You see me up here in my cheap jeans all the time. But I have many times in my life and am every day tempted to make decisions that are about whether or not my name's going to be exalted if I do it. Whether or not people will think more of me. Whether people will be pleased with me. Anyone else? One pastor was talking about how this creeps into his decision making. And he writes, I was reading the scripture in the morning and came across a particularly meaningful nugget. My thoughts immediately drifted toward my staff meeting later that morning. I thought, I can tell them about this insight I've had. They'll be impressed that I thought of it particularly when they know it came out of time I devoted to being with God. It may cause them to think of me as a spiritually advanced person. He writes, of course, the thoughts weren't articulated quite that clearly, even in my own mind, but that was the gist of what I thought. Then he he notes, ironically, the insight involved the nature of humility. (laughs) We are all tempted to clean the house before company comes over. Not to honor guests, but so that they will think more of us and the kinds of housekeepers we are when they arrive. We are all tempted to put unhealthy pressure as parents on our kids so that their outward behavior will conform to some sort of standard so that people will think more of my parenting or your parenting. 
We are all tempted as students to walk into school and leave the name of Jesus behind so that there's a group of people that will think more of us. We are all tempted to focus our decision-making around self and what people think of us and our names being lifted up. And, And this is the sin of Babel, right? Let us make a name for ourselves. Focus on me. Focus on my way. Focus on my name. Friends, pride grows when I give in to the sinful temptation to measure myself against other people. Since sin came into humanity, we have regularly been tempted to measure ourselves against other people and then react to how we feel we're doing in those measurements. And if I can measure myself against you in some way that has me coming out on top, that produces this understanding of pride that swells up inside of me. Oh, look at, look at where I am compared to where they are. There was a famous pastor decades ago that wrestled with this. His name was Harry Ironside. And a group of his friends came to him one day in order to confront him about his pride and the fact that he thought of himself as above so many others. And the friends recommended that as a remedy that he march through the streets of Chicago wearing a sandwich board declaring his need for humility and shouting scripture verses block after block all about pride for everyone to hear. Dr. Ironside agreed to this venture, and when he returned to his study, he removed the board and he said to his friends, I'll bet there's not another man in town who'd be willing to do that. (laughs) We wouldn't say anything this overt, but we regularly measure ourselves against others because of the impact of sin, and then we react based on how we think we're doing compared to others. When we feel that we are over others, we experience pride. When we measure ourselves against others and see that we're beneath others, we can get discouraged. But we don't like to be discouraged. And so one thing that we're all tempted to do is try and change the unit of measure in some way so that we can come out on top. Right? Do you know what I'm saying? We don't want to be discouraged. And so when I measure myself against you, if I come out lower than you are, I will try and change the unit of measure to something else where I can come out on top. And pride enters back into the picture. I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago at Shakopee as we were talking about Cain and measuring himself against Abel and some of those kinds of things that we see in that passage. And I shared with them a story that I've shared with you before about when I was 16. My wife and I had just started dating, and one Friday night, she went out to a movie with some of her friends, and I was stuck at home hanging out with my parents on a Friday night. This, <laughs> like a good kid. <clears throat> so, this was during a time in my life where I was really struggling with acne. Anybody been in that place? Right, my face was like a boiling pot of water with just one bubble of zit popping up after another. It was great. And during this time, my wife goes to a movie. I'm at home feeling a little down about my appearance. And when she gets home from the movie, she calls me. Right? So I'm 16. She's 17. We're talking on the phone. We just started dating, I don't know, maybe four or five months before this. And she starts telling me about the movie that she went to, which was starring Tom Cruise. And in the midst of this, she happens to say, 
that Tom Cruise looked pretty handsome. And so now in my mind, I'm playing the comparison game. Okay, there's me with my bubbling face, and there's Tom Cruise. Not today's Tom Cruise. This is 1989 Tom Cruise. Right? Are you kidding me? Like, what chance do I have in this measurement? And so as I'm sitting here feeling kind of discouraged about myself and the fact that I'm clearly below Tom Cruise, and it's a long way below Tom Cruise, what do I say to my wife in response to her saying to me, Tom Cruise look handsome? I say to her, you know he's only 5'6". <laughs> 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 Why? Well, because on the measure of handsomeness, there was nothing I could do to reverse that. And so instead, I changed the unit of measure to a measure where I had eight inches on him. Right? And now, look at, look at how I'm on to, Oh, and, and this allows us to enter back into pride. And we do this in all kinds of ways in our life that are, frankly, less funny. I, I was talking to a friend... Uh, a while back, and he was telling me about a buddy of his who bought a brand new car and brought it to church on a Sunday morning. I don't remember what kind of car it was, but it was a real nice sedan that had all the bells and whistles. And this guy brought my friend out to show him the new car and show him all that it had. And my friend said, yeah, okay, I looked at all of the fancy bells and whistles that the car had. And then I got into my 12-year-old minivan with my wife and my kids, and I began to drive home. And my friend said to me, what I turned and said to my wife was, as I was driving away and looking at that sedan in the mirror, I could never waste God's money like that. <laughs> right? Now, what, what was my friend doing? And he was admitting this to me as we were talking about it. What was my friend doing? He, he was looking at this measurement of how nice a car you were driving, his 12-year-old minivan or this brand-new sedan. Right? And he knew that the sedan was well above his 12-year-old minivan. And so in order to get back to a place where he could have some pride, he decided to switch the unit of measure and made it about stewardship instead of about niceness of car. Now, did he really care about stewardship? No, not really. And he admitted that to me as we were talking. What he really cared about was the fact that he was losing here, but if he switched the unit of measure, he could win over here. And as people, we will regularly do that in our lives. We'll switch the unit of measure so we come out on top and then we have pride. Pride in the fact that we are above others. That's how we roll in these areas. Of course, God never wants us to measure ourselves against others. It isn't just that God doesn't want us to see ourselves above others. No, he never wants us to measure ourselves against others at all. He doesn't want you measuring yourself against others and feeling proud because you're on top. He doesn't want you measuring yourself against others and feeling discouraged because you're below. He doesn't want you measuring yourself against others at all. That is a product of sin. Instead, and this is a little intimidating, God wants you to measure yourself only against him. God never wants you to measure yourself against another person. Instead, he wants you to solely measure yourself against him. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, be pure as God is pure. 
1 Peter 1.15, be holy as I am holy. John 13.33 and 34, love as I have loved. God doesn't want us ever comparing ourselves to each other. That can lead to pride. Instead, he only wants us to compare ourselves to him, to be focused in on him, to be close to him, to be constantly looking at his greatness and his majesty and his enormity, and in response saying, oh, wow, I'm kind of small. I'm kind of small. He's great, and I'm kind of small. I love this quote by Philip Brooks. The true way to be humble is not to stoop until you are smaller than yourself, but to stand at your real height against some higher nature that will show you what the real smallness of your greatness is. True humility isn't about shrinking yourself. And it certainly isn't about shrinking yourself in comparison to other people. Well, compared to them, I don't really do this very well. Well, that, I mean, that's their thing. I, I, I'm just not very good. I just, right? It isn't about shrinking yourself, trying to belittle yourself. Genuine humility, he says, is about standing against something much greater than yourself and recognizing how small you are by comparison. You ever stood outside at night and looked up into the sky when all of the stars are visible and just been in awe of the enormity of our galaxy, the enormity of our universe, and felt so small by comparison? Isaiah says, our God holds all of that universe in the hollow of his hand. We worship a God who is perfect in righteousness, who is majestic beyond our understanding, who loves perfectly. And when we rightly see him, humility is the natural response. Humility is the natural response when we rightly see how great our God is. We bow in front of his amazing majesty. Jesus is the only one who has ever lived who could rightly make the boasts of Babylon. Jesus is the only one who ever lived who could rightly make the boasts of Babylon. Make a name for myself? He is the one whose name is above every other name, isn't he? I am, and there is no one like me. That's true of Jesus. It's not true of any of us, but that's true of Jesus, isn't it? He is over and above, and yet, what did Jesus do? As the one who is, and there is no other like him, he came and humbled himself, we are told, and he took on the appearance of a man in order to go to the cross so that we might be saved from the city of pride to the city of humility, so that we might be saved from Babylon to the city of God so that we might be saved from the city of death to the city of life. Jesus, who is above every other name, humbled himself so that we might be saved. If you're his follower here today, what does he call us to? He calls us to leave pride, self-centeredness, self-absorption behind, and instead to be people of humility. Believer, I want to give you just a little practice that you can be doing this week in the weeks to come in order to continue to move away from pride and grow into Jesus' kingdom of humility. And I give you this little practice with confidence because uh, it's Jesus' practice that he teaches us. And that is simply to pray 
and to pray according to the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. When our prayer life every day, every time we pray, is focused on God's name being exalted and hallowed. When our prayer life every time we pray is focused on God's rule and reign taking place in all of the events of our life. When our prayer life is primarily focused on God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven, in all of the situations that we face, it focuses our hearts and our minds on him and his greatness and his priorities. It kills, it, it, it kills pride within us and enlivens humility as we focus on his name, his attention, his will instead of on ourselves. I have used this quote way too many times. Uh, but I love it so much, and so I bring it back again from J.I. Packer on his, in his book, Praying the Lord's Prayer, which I commend to all of you. It's like 60 pages long. It is a wonderful read. He says, were we left to ourselves, any praying we did would both start and end with ourselves, for our natural self-centeredness knows no bounds. Indeed, much pagan praying of this kind goes on among supposedly Christian people. But Jesus' pattern prayer which is both crutch, road, and walking lesson for the spiritually lame like ourselves, tells us to start with God for lesson one is to grasp that God matters infinitely more than we do. Amen and amen. If I run to God every time I come in prayer, and my primary focus and the first words out of my mouth are, God, I want, God, I want, God, do this, God, do this, it only reinforces the self-absorption and self-focus in my life. And so when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray in an entirely different way than that. One that is God-focused, one that is absorbed in Jesus, one that is about what God would have, his reign and his rule. And so if we want to be a people who are moving from pride to humility, Jesus has taught us the way to be a people who are regularly praying according to the way that he taught us. Let me encourage you this week, to pray in the way that Jesus has taught us to pray. When you wake up every morning, your focus is on his name throughout that day. As you wake up every morning, your focus is on how his rule is going to be established through your life, his reign, and how his will is going to be done in the situations that you face. As you walk into a meeting at work, your primary prayer is about Jesus' name being exalted in that meeting. When you drop your kids off at school, your primary prayer is that Jesus' will, as he's expressed it in the scriptures, would be done through your child at school. Let us be a people who are focused on the way that Jesus has called us to pray and watch what God does in us as we follow the pattern that he has given to us in order to kill pride and enliven humility in us. Now, the only reason that that's even a possibility the only reason that we can even come before God boldly and spend time with him in prayer is because Jesus, who is the rightful center of all, who has a name that is above every name, humbled himself, went to the cross on our behalf. And we give him thanks and praise every time we gather because that's what makes our life possible, right? That's as good as it gets, isn't it? And so let's spend a little bit of time just focusing on what Jesus has done in order to move us from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, from the kingdom of pride to the kingdom of humility, from the kingdom of Babylon to the city of God. We're going to take communion here in just a minute.
the worship team's coming forward. And as they play for a little bit, we're going to sing a couple of songs. I'd encourage you to just focus your hearts. Focus your hearts on Jesus and what he has done in order to bring you from that city of pride to the city of humility. From that place of sin to that place of righteousness and love. And then when you're ready, you can get up and make your way over to the tables and grab the elements and bring them back to your seats. And after a couple of songs, I'll get back up here and lead us in the taking of those elements.